Hello and welcome to today's podcast. Thank you for joining us at VJH Monk for the latest updates in hematological oncology and exclusive insights from renowned experts. Today's session is part of our post ash series, focusing in on the highlights in myeloproliferative neoplasms from the ash 2020 virtual meeting. Joining us for a deep dive into the latest MPN's news, we have Ruben Messer from UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson Cancer Center, Claire Harrison from Guys and St Thomas's in London, and Surgeon Vasovchek and Naveen Pemaraju from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Stay tuned for thought-provoking details on the latest genetic discoveries and therapeutic options. Hello, my name is Ruben Massa and I'm the executive director of the Mays Cancer Center at UT Health San Antonio MD Anderson and delighted to be joined by some wonderful friends and colleagues to give this VJ Hemock update on some of the highlights at ash of the model proliferative neoplasms. I'm joined by my wonderful friend Dr. Claire Harrison, professor at Guys and St Thomas's in London. Welcome Claire. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Serge Verstavchek, uh, fellow Texan colleague just down the road at, at MD Anderson, a spectacular leader of the MPN efforts at MD Anderson. Welcome, Serge. Hello, Ruben. And, and the uh, always energetic, enigmatic, and, and social media star that is Naveen Pemaraju, uh, who is a deep expert in, in MPNs, also at, at MD Anderson, also a fellow Texan. Welcome, Naveen. Thank you Ruben for having us. Fantastic. So, we're going to cover over the next 30 minutes or so just an informal discussion regarding some of the exciting updates in MPNs. Uh and I'm deeply excited. You know, as I had shared with with others on on a discussion about ash, I have been caring for MPN patients it'll now be 30 years and next year which is which is uh, amazing. But the first 15 of those years We didn't have much. You know, there was one MPN session and at the MPN session maybe we talked about interferon, maybe we talked about thalidomide, we tried to beg borrow or steal drugs from other indications, but not a lot was happening. The discovery of the JAK2 mutation in 2005 really was a watershed moment. A lot of investment from the pharmaceutical in, uh, industry, uh, a lot of uh, expansion of our field in terms of investigators global networks patient engagement you know and many drugs being developed so really a very exciting time but first let me let me throw this out here uh, perhaps have a clear comment first uh, as there was a a very interesting uh, late breaking abstract from Dr. Nangalia and the wonderful group there at Cambridge uh, regarding Uh, issues of clonal evolution for individuals with an MPN suggesting that the origins genetically may go all the way back even in utero which raise questions about aging and, and the core of biology and hematopoiesis itself so Claire, what was your takeaway from that really interesting late breaking abstract well thanks ruben i think Well, first of all to say boy science has moved on because five years ago we were doing one PCR on a colony and now we're doing whole genome sequencing on a colony. Um I mean Jotty and the team at the Sanger absolutely amazing work fantastic mathematical modeling 
showing, you know, that we can not only have clonal expansion in utero, but also non-clonal expansion of stem cells, which is absolutely fascinating and raises all sorts of questions about um, early treatment, whether some of our treatments can promote genomic stability and prevent further mutations from arising, but also public health issues because many of these mutations may be associated with thrombosis as well. So absolutely amazing, really inspirational, a great watch. Naveen and Serge, you know, it, it raises an interesting point in terms of, you know, the origin of that predisposition goes way back to perhaps infancy. But then clearly there are pressures that lead to, to this turning on in some people, clonal evolution. It, 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 any thoughts regarding that, you know, and if you're a patient watching this or even a physician, you know, what might be some of the contributors to, to clonal evolution that turns on an MPN? Well, uh, Ruben, thanks uh, for having us. Uh, what an important question as we review Dr. Nangalia's work. I think uh, a lot of hypotheses here in this area with maybe not solutions. I think you have to factor in second, third, fourth hits, as we say, maybe uh, features such as environmental, uh, things such as inflammation or tissue injury for our patients over time. We have this concept of chip or clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential that we've thought of generally for older adults, but you're right, this paradigm shifts. Now we have to think about this in the younger setting. So factors such as inflammation, obesity, smoking, environmental factors, and the acquisition of other genetic mutations much younger than we thought possibly could play a role. But uh, I'd turn it to Serge to see uh, his thoughts as well, Serge. Yeah, I think there are a number of factors that may contribute to one developing the disease later on in the course of their life. But uh, this is exploratory field for us as of yet. However, obviously this being a late breaking abstract, many right away say, what does this mean for everyday practice today? And my patients come up, uh, those that follow the chat rooms and uh, news uh, outlets that uh, work uh, on the MPN particularly. And they say, should I have my family members tested for and then they go on with the Jack mutation or any other mutations, and my answer is no. There is no real knowledge who and whether they will ever develop uh, any disease, as it has been the discussed for what Naveen alluded to, that we have known about older population of people, some of them, particularly after 65 years of age, having a Jack mutation and never, ever develop uh, the disease. So the same type of discussion has to be extended to the earlier age, uh, saying clearly that that is not something that is actionable at all right now and no need for testing. Uh, and I would like just quickly to see what your feeling is about the applicability or no applicability or no action on this particular information as of yet, because but, that's what I'm asking. Know, I, I would definitely patients. agree with you, Serge. You know, as I, as I try to share with patients, you know, it's fascinating from a scientific standpoint, but if you're the patient facing the disease, it's clearly less fascinating and more, uh, more terrifying kind of watching the, the scientific sausage being made. You know, I think we're gaining further insights into really some of the core issues of why do you develop diseases like this? But we don't have the answers yet. Uh, and, you know, although there can be many speculations in terms of what is a driver that either turns it on or leads to progression, you know, it's not quite ready for prime time. 
So I, I would have folks be excited that all of this is going on, but recognize, although it's difficult, that uh, patience is required because you're right, we don't know whether any of it is actionable uh, in the near term for, for patients. Uh, Claire, you had a comment? Yeah, a couple of things. I think, um, so and no evidence of any impact of any treatment. So no evidence of benefit for interferon or hydroxycarbamide, small number of patients. But also I think in a way, maybe reassuring for patients because they probably have the disease very, very slowly evolving for a long time. So, you know, many patients would kind of tick off while well, I've had the disease for this long and then I, and I've only got another 10 years, but it's just showing um, slow evolution, I think, for many patients. But also that we need this science of molecular genomics and modeling and we really need to understand it. Thanks. We do. You know, I'm grateful that we have a field that really has a, a rich tapestry of people working together. Uh, on this call, clearly most of us are really focused on therapy, therapy evaluation, the development of, of new pharmacologic therapies, but really grateful that we're working in parallel with, with brilliant laboratory scientists like Ross Levine, Anne Mullally, Yoti, uh, Tony Green, Robert Kralovics, uh, Radek Skoda, you know, and many others whose you know, phenomenal laboratories are really you know, making some key insights. Well, let's pivot a bit toward therapy. And again, some of these issues are relevant in that as we think about goals of therapy, you know, avoidance of progression is, is one of those areas of interest. Uh, and certainly at this year's ASH meeting, there was an entire session on therapies for PV with a heavy focus on a whole slew of, of favorable data as related to, to interferons. You know, how early should we use them? A couple different formulations. Uh, long-term data from a couple of centers regarding interferons. Naveen, what was your takeaway from, from kind of the PV interferon data? Ruben, great question. Uh, as is often in our field, what's old can be new again. And so our colleagues, uh, Dr. Silver in particular in New York has been thinking and talking about interferon for decades now. And I was pleased to see sort of a resurgence of interest in this. Two things caught my eye at ASH. One is the ropegylated interferon, which we and others have been thinking and talking about for some time. Our colleagues, Dr. Gisslinger and Jean-Jacques Kelagian showed this sort of five-year long-term follow-up data and easier to give administration than the Pegasus interferon that many of us in the States are used to, possibly less side effects, and of course, long-term safety and, and tolerability data. That was encouraging to see. And I think that as that enters into the United States in clinical trial, hopefully possibly an approval at some point, it could change our landscape for our patients. I think a second factor was interferon-based therapies here in the States, as shown by Dr. Silver's group. In terms of long-term, lots of patients treated and showing disease modification, safety, and, and raising the question if some patients can discontinue um, with uh, interferon uh, for our patients. So I thought there was a lot of great emphasis on it. And I think the future of the interferon field will be, can we safely combine it with JAK inhibitor as are several studies ongoing, the COMBI study and others? And can we continue to mitigate long-term side effects for our patients taking uh, any interferon formulation? But I think these were some of the take-home points, Ruben. Excellent. A couple other areas that I think were really uh, of interest, I have Serge comment on one and clear on the other, but first, Served there was the, the pilot data presented from Ron Hoffman's group 
at Mount Sinai with the, the Hephzidean agonist from protagonist. Kind of interesting, different mechanism of action. Maybe share with folks a little bit, you know, what, what does a Hephzidean agonist, what role could it play in PV? And, and you know, how do you think that might into our algorithm if it uh, proves to, to, to mature and become an option? While we are looking very carefully at the development of ROPEG interferon, uh, which is approved in Europe. It was approved a year ago. An application for its approval was placed here in the United States in June of this year. Maybe it's going to be approved for PV next year uh, here in the United States. We also look at other mechanisms of action that potentially can benefit our patients. And hepciding, as one of the key regulators of iron metabolism in a body, comes to forefront with the application of PTG300. PTG300 is hepciding mimetic. What it does is uh, keeps the iron, and iron is very important in PV, first to clarify. Iron, I simplified always, it's like a food for red blood cells. So in polycythemia vera patients, there is iron deficiency because iron is utilized by red blood cells for growth. As we phlebotomize the patients, people become more and more iron deficient. There is less and less of iron for red blood cells and less of phlebotomy. But not everybody uh, develops that uh, favorable uh, outcome, have a side effect from phlebotomy, side effects from iron deficiency. So there are issues about it. And so with hepcidimimetic, what happens is the redistribution of iron. It stays in the tissue of the body, in liver, in the spleen, and it's less available for red blood cells and less of a growth of red blood cells. And with the PTG300, what we see immediately in 18 patients that were presented uh, an outcome, uh, their outcome was presented as cessation of a need for phlebotomy. At the same time, the measurements of uh, other factors related to iron metabolism normalize in the patient's body. The fer ferritin, for example, which is usually surrogate marker for measuring iron, normalizes. MCV, the size of red blood cells, normalizes. So it has some really favorable effect on the body itself by at the same time eliminating need for phlebotomy. So, the question that you posed is really where we go from, from there. So highly effective, appears to be safe. It's injectable under the skin once a week. It requires some months to find a dose that perhaps would be easy to, uh, to deliver without monitoring blood cell count too often. We can utilize it in patients that are dependent on phlebotomies, have too many phlebotomies, or because of iron deficiency have a side effects, or maybe as a junk to cytotoxics to hydroxyurea. Hydroxyurea is not optimally managing the patients. And this gives me actually opportunity to extend uh, our discussion to two other presentations that were not in oral session, but I find it very, very instructive. Analysis of the efficacy of hydroxyurea in community practice. It's not very good. Only about 40% of patients appear to derive optimal benefits. Majority don't. We don't have really, uh, such optimistic results on the use of hydroxyurea itself to say, yes, that's the one, forget about any other. No, that's not the case. There is a room for improvement with hydroxyurea alone. There is room for adding PTG300, alternative therapy with interferon, or even with ruxolitinib and a second line drug. Wonderful. Uh, a final thing on, on PV. It was shown earlier this year at EHA and up, upcoming data regarding potentially even using interferons in uh, early PV versus phlebotomy 
with perhaps kind of an event-free survival sort of, of endpoint. Uh, our group uh, presented a, a retrospective analysis of much of the symptom data that we had gathered that you know, did help to validate that there are many patients that are on FLEVs only or that are, quote, low risk that do have significant symptoms. And surprisingly, at least a third or more are receiving cytoreduction. So I think it was you know, very interesting to see those data coming forward from uh, Professor Barbui and an Italian-led study. Okay. Claire, any thoughts on, on interferons for, for earlier risk PV? What do you think, particularly in the UK, where you have very stringent standards, things have to be approved by NICE, you know, they not only have to be approved, they have to be paid for. Uh, you know, what, what do you think makes the case uh, for you know, introducing therapy in low-risk PV? Well, uh, actually, interferon isn't, isn't we can I prescribe it free of any nice restrictions. So, um, but I, I think it's important. I think um, the there are a few issues, right? So the, actually the British guidelines, we're very fond of our guidelines. They reference you know, treatment for PV patients for progressive symptoms, for pro pro progressive splenomegaly. And the, I think referencing that sometimes earlier treatment is indicated. I really want to see Tiziano's data about progression-free events. Because whilst I'm kind of really impressed with the um, symptom data, it was open label study. So, you know, th these are patients who are on an agent early on filling in their symptom data. And, and we did see still persistent fatigue, which is a very common problem for these patients. So I'm, I am interested. I'm also really interested in the hepcidin story for these patients too, because iron deficiency carries a lot of morbidity for those patients and venesections is difficult. And I think Jyoti's data might play in here as well. You know, how long is a low risk PV patient really a low-risk PV patient. I think we need to do a lot more work here. Um, what uh, Tiziano's data has made us think about a lot more, though, is actually, you know, really looking at symptoms and really looking at whether the patient might benefit from a trial of therapy early on to try to see what might help them. But I think we really lack an effective agent. So actually, in the UK, we're interested in looking at roxolitinib early on in PV patients, and, and maybe even the combination, but that, that would be way too fanciful and costly in for UK practice anyway. So we're studying roxolitinib versus interferon versus hydroxyurea up front. I think all of this has a lot of merit. You know, I think many patients with PV have a burden with the disease that's inadequately addressed by phlebotomy and aspirin. Uh, and that, you know, I think we need to, to prove that case and which therapy and what are the endpoints and what merits therapy and how is it evaluated. Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of personalization of therapy that we'll have as things evolve. Well, let's pivot in our final section to, to, to both myelofibrosis as well as some of the other uh, uh, more uh, uncommon NPNs. But first, let's, let's start with myelofibrosis. You know, as I've shared with many patients, there's a very robust pipeline, and for many reasons, that pipeline starts uh, with patients with MF. There's a, a lot of unmet needs, and uh, a lot of therapies will be tested in MF patients first, and then potentially you know, expanded to, to other areas. 
Now, at this year's meeting, there was several areas of discussion so, talking really about survival, uh, an improvement in survival, either retrospectively with a very nice data that, that Surge's group presented, as well as with momolidinib potentially, uh, and even a middle stat. Serge, you, you were involved with, with many of these different analysis. What is survival as, as an endpoint? How is that evolving in, in MF? And, and just a high level summary of what was seen with some of those abstracts as it relates to, you know, are we improving survival in MF? This is really important because that is the most important for the patient and it should be the most important endpoint for our drugs in terms of what they do. We so far have focused uh, properly on improvement on quality of life, improvement of the symptoms, decreasing the spleen, making people feel better, walking more, gaining weight, and also improving the bone marrow function, improving the anemia. But ultimately we want through those uh, control of the symptoms and signs to also make people live longer. So we are finally in the area here where we are actually talking about dev devising a studies with the ultimate goal or a first goal actually uh, to make people live longer. And so where would that play the most? Uh, and that would be in the second line setting where people after treatment with JAK inhibitor, most of the time ruxolitinib, have uh, retrospectively looking at the survival, have a short survival with a bad quality of life, with big spleen, with anemia, and not much one can do. Um, the evidence from imetostat, this is one of the medications that you have mentioned in a reanalysis of a prior study where the imetostat, which is telomerase inhibitor given under the IV every three weeks as a infusion, uh, was tested for improvement in the spleen and quality of life, eventually suggested strongly that this drug actually uh, makes people live longer possibly. So now we are, uh, have a number of reports uh, at ASH on additional on ovimetrostat, trying to understand why would people live longer. So there was improvements in the bone marrow fibrosis, in some genetic abnormalities, analysis in chromosomes. Some people felt better, some people have a smaller spleen. There is a concoction of these benefits that apparently, and that's a subject to the next study, make people live longer in the, in the situation where the life is bad and it's short. So we are looking forward actually based on all of this knowledge about what the metastat can possibly do to conduct all together the survival study, that's how I say it, for a metastat in a second setting after JAK inhibitor uh, to compare to best valuable therapy and see whether this drug really prolongs life. Now, I'd like to add uh, information that you uh, alluded to in our own uh, efforts to analyze what is actually the survival of the patients in the modern era. We are very cognizant of the prognostic scoring systems that were developed uh, on past experience, like international prognostic scoring systems, and now we have molecularly inspired prognostic scoring systems. But I always say they are developed based on the past, 10, 20, 30 years in the past, and we are looking to project the future for patients that are here with us in the clinic now. So we looked at our own experience in, in 1,500 mild fibrosis patients, and we clearly documented and presented that the life expectancy is improving. It's every five years, as we separate patients in, a, in a groups, it's getting better and better through better care, through, through earlier intervention, 
through everything that we do for our patients. So even though we don't have too many new medications approved as of yet, the life is better and it's longer just through our care. So very satisfying. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I think it continues to validate that I think therapies, as, as we've all reported together as investigators on the comfort studies, you know, that ruxolitinib has had an impact in, in survival. You know, and any of us that care for a lot of MF patients don't, don't doubt the validity of that, you know, for one moment. You know, patients are living longer. There, there is no question. Uh, in the latter 15 years of my career versus the first 15, uh, it's pretty significant. You know, the very severe MF patient, markedly cachective, massive spleen, ascites, I see, I see less of this. Uh, you know, and I think jack inhibition, you know, and effective therapies have, ha have really made an impact. Now, there was a, a variety of themes, and perhaps we'll try to summarize them at, at a high level, both in terms of the potential of combinations, either at the time of, for JAK inhibitor naive patients, so it's a RUX plus the BET inhibitor CPI 0610, or adding a, another drug to RUX in suboptimal responders, both 610 as well as Nevitoclax. Uh, Claire, you were on, on both of those. Any thoughts, just at a high level, what do you think the combinations bring to the table? And do you think we'll evolve to a place where everyone gets a combo or that we use them in subsets? Well, thanks, Ruben. I think super exciting data and boy, a really crowded field, actually, second line uh, for myelofibrosis. So the first thing is the definition of the second line patient, probably very heterogeneous, quite difficult to compare across studies. Probably the most developed story is the CPI story with the sequential kind of a monotherapy add to RACs and then their um, JAK inhibitor naive randomized study. Interesting, you know, 67% response in naive patients, probably slightly less in the second line add-on. But importantly, anemia responses, which I think is, you know, anemia is a big unmet need for these patients. Well-tolerated drug, um, very little in the way of additional side effects. Um, seems to be beneficial. A, a number of different agents showing data for bone marrow fibrosis regression this year, that seemed to be quite a common theme and, 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 and an unvalidated endpoint really, but uh, it's nice to see that data being collected and also the allele burden changes that were collected by both. So Navitaclax, clearly different agent, very different target, slightly smaller number of patients, but really exciting data as well. Adding on to uh, rocks, clearly additional benefit, fibrosis reduction again, and quite a difficult group of patients, high molecular risk mutations, but slightly more challenging because of thrombocytopenia. So I think probably there would be different patients who are best suited to different uh, agents. And it was interesting to look at the emetostat data and see that they could clearly see that responses were better in patients that had higher TERT levels or shorter telomeres at baseline. And indeed, we presented some data with tamoxifen showing that we thought we could identify responders up front with RNA-seq. So I think uh, to come back to your question and your challenging one, actually, will all patients end up with a combo? I doubt it at the moment, certainly in the short term, because I think roxolitinib is good for many patients as a single agent. 
it's nice to test other things in combination up front. But first, many patients, probably roxolitinib alone is good enough until they start to lose response or if we find a way to identify them as a patient that's high risk of progressing. So I think, you know, lots of excitement. You, you pick two drugs, but there are others like LSD1 also showing exciting data. So I think busy, exciting. You know, I, I strongly agree with you, Ian. What I'm really excited just the, the depth of the platform. You know, there's the MDM2 inhibitors. Uh, I'm involved with the studies from Imago with the uh, IMG7289, both an MF as well as a PV study, and clearly active. Uh, these other drugs that are being looked at as single agent, we've not looked at them in combination, but is it going to be a similar story? You know, expanded benefit if you use in JAK inhibitor naive with a JAK inhibitor, or do you add it on after three months or as a second line? I do think in terms of clinical management, we probably will evolve to starting with a JAK inhibitor, maybe have a subset that we have identified from phase three studies have a higher likelihood of response to a combination, but probably not in everyone. And that will probably be more rigorous in terms of, you know, what's an optimal response at three months or six months and add something else on. You know, the issue of a single agent for years and then adding another drug is probably more of a reflection of a bit kind of where we have been than, than where we may be, may be going. And not you to know, uh, forget about the uh, loose patercept, which is yes, the, in development for anemia. Anemia is a major problem, a major unmet need uh, where we struggle. I mean, anemia leads to underperformance of JAK inhibitors, underdosing and early discontinuation. So Luspatercept, which is approved for some patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, is being tested as add-on approach to JAK inhibitor for people who are anemic. And if that uh, makes it at the end, I hope all of this drug eventually makes it. But this one has uh, opportunity to, in a simple and effective way, cover the third as of yet uncovered problem. So spleen symptoms by JAK inhibitor, anemia with loose patercept. Yeah, and I think also the interesting thing with that data is it seems to be very effective in patients already on roxolitinib. Maybe, maybe small numbers, but maybe more so, which, which is also intriguing, but good because uh, it may help us in managing roxolitinib or other JAK inhibitors. But I think, you know, Serge, you presented the data with momolotinib, which is also an interesting JAK inhibitor. We didn't see so much with pacritinib this year, but there's the Pacifica study ongoing. But your momolotinib data with the long-term efficacy, long-term durability, of responses for transfusion independence and spleen were, were really very interesting. Yeah, we, we, t we talk about combinations to enhance the benefits and add additional benefits. But in Mamelotinib, I'm really actually very pleased what we have shown by a reanalysis of the past phase three studies, Simplify 1 and Simplify 2, that is really effective to a great deal in improving the spleen and symptoms and anemia for a long, prolonged period of time and possibly extending life, which is not a surprise. We know, as we said before, that's the fact with the ruxolitinib. So here we have a drug easy to give. It's being developed as a second line choice for control of the symptoms and anemia, and it can do good on a spleen and possibly make people live longer. So I encourage everybody to enjoy that drug on a clinical study if it's available to you. 
You know, I think that that definitely should be a strong takeaway for, for everyone watching this. There is a, a very robust pipeline of myelofibrosis studies, particularly in, in suboptimal JAK inhibitor responders, but even in naive patients. Uh, I, 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 thank you, Serge. I had forgotten to mention Lospatercept that I think, given it would be a third indication, I think is a high likelihood of being successfully indicated and a very nice addition in terms of anemia. Uh, I think mamalinum and procrinum likely will, will become approved with successful phase threes and, and each kind of having their own unique niche. But for folks who have MF patients out there, know there is a robust pipeline of phase three studies as well as institutional phase two studies. If you have someone who's really not having an optimal response, you know, think about, uh, think about that piece. Uh, we've mentioned PV, we've mentioned MF, where we're nearing the end of our time, but wanted to just tell, tackle a couple other quick things. Uh, first, Claire, we haven't mentioned too much about ET. We've got some exciting things coming up. Uh, there is yeah. a global study with ROPEG that uh, Serge and I are, are leading, put a plug in for that for a second line for ET. But other key ET updates from ASH. Yeah, great. So I think not so much from ASH, but wanting to just call out that, um, yes, your ROPEG study and, and we'd like to join that in Europe would be fab. Um, but and that some of the agents we've been talking about, CPI 0610 and the Imago agent, Bowman Demstat or IMG 7289, both of them launching studies in ET, which I think is, you know, really exciting and important. We, we need some new drugs there and we need to see the data from the roxolitinib versus uh, nagrolide study. Be good. Fabulous. Now, a couple less common diseases perhaps we'll, we'll close out with just to show you the, the, the breadth of everything that's going on. First, some real progress with systemic mastocytosis. You know, as someone who is, uh, has spent part of his career really focusing on disease burden and symptoms, patients with systemic mastocytosis really can have some of the most difficult times with their, their disease. And there've really been some excited targeted therapies. Serge, any high level summaries of, of what folks should be thinking are coming over the horizon for systemic mastocytosis. Uh, there is a lot of excitement and hopefully next year we're gonna have a new drug approved for uh, systemic mastocytosis. Just to remind everybody, there are a large two groups of mastocytosis patients. And th so this is the chronic disease of mast cells, type of white cells that may be in the bone marrow and other organs. And we divide patients based simply whether they have organ damage from the disease or not. Normal organ function that is indolent or benign systemic mastocytosis, bad quality of life, but normal organs functions and normal life expectancy. Most of these people are treated by allergists. And the goal obviously is to improve the quality of life. But advanced mastocytosis or aggressive comes with the organ malfunction and life is short, three, five, seven years. And here we need to be more aggressive. That's the bread and butter of what hematologists slash oncologists do. And in that setting in particular, we have avapritinib uh, as the new drug that has been developed through several years now as a very effective therapy, achieving high level of elimination of the disease or partial elimination of the disease in the patients that suffer a lot from symptoms, inability to produce uh, red blood cells, having big spleen, losing weight, similar clinical picture to advanced myelofibrosis. And it's all about targeting underlying biological problem, which is 
mutations in a kid gene, kid D816V, which drives the disease process. And in that sense, uh, this is targeted agent and uh, very effective. And, and the correlations that were presented at the American Society of Hematology meeting says that pathological elimination of the disease to different degrees correlates very, very nicely with clinical outcome and possible survival benefit of these patients. So a lot of enthusiasm to not only, again, like in fibrosis, focus on immediate control of the symptoms, but moving on to the elimination of the disease in mastocytosis and prolonging life. The drug is also being tested in indolent disease patients at a much smaller dose, which should be safe and effective for control of the symptoms. So we closely follow this developmental path for this drug called avapritinib. Wonderful. And finally, uh, a, not a common disease, but one where there's been a tremendous impact. And Dr. Premaraju has really been, you know, at the forefront of of uh, of that evolving story uh, on BPDCN. Naveen, want to give folks just just the elevator speech, if you would, of of the the disease, the burden, but how the new therapy is impacting them. Yeah, thanks, Ruben and, and team, for highlighting these ultra-rare blood cancers, which I think are now finding a home in a lot of the research and patient care. Because when you're a patient with a rare disease, it's not rare to you. It's a disease that you and your family are facing. Blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, or BPDCN, really is kind of its own myeloid uh, neoplasm entity now. And it basically affects 500 to 1,000 Americans a year. It has features of sort of lymphoma, skin disease, and leukemia as it affects the skin, bone marrow, and lymph nodes. And really overall survival has been short, Ruben, eight to 14 months with standard cytotoxic chemotherapy. The breakthrough in our field was the discovery that CD123 or IL-3 receptor alpha is overexpressed in 100% of these patients and there have been no targeted approaches until recently. I was able to lead our group uh, to study the first one, Tagraxifus, or SO401, which gained FDA approval for ages two and older in BPDCN. That was two years ago now. And now at ASH, I presented data on a second generation, if you will, of CD123 targeting agents with IMGN632, which is showing promising, encouraging data, uh, which I presented in the ASH oral presentation. So the take-home point is in rare diseases, rare blood cancers, try to find a personalized, precision, targeted way to treat, minimize toxicity, and improve research, understanding, and outcomes through uh, this sort of focused approach, and then try to extrapolate it to other diseases. Wonderful. Well, uh, this has been a, a phenomenal discussion. Maybe we'll have just one last comment for, from each of our panelists on something they're really excited about as it relates to MPN progress in 2021. Uh, Claire, why don't you start us off? Well, uh, I'm just ex continually excited by the way we work collaboratively and we use science to drive the way forward. But I was just struck by Naveen's comments and wanted to shout out the pemigatinib story in nice. FGFR mutated um, diseases to another really rare, Brilliant. probably fewer than 500 to 1,000 Americans. We only managed to recruit two patients in the UK, but that's a game-changing drug. So think about that if you've got a patient with AP11, AP11 mutated myeloid or lymphoid disease. Thanks all. Fantastic. Serge, how about yourself? What excites you with MPNs in 21? At the last count, I think we had about 10 different phase three studies in, in uh, development or underway. Phase three studies are those that compare new to old. 
and make us approve new drugs. So imagine that we have 10 new drugs in next 10 years or five years. It will be wow. incredible. So I'm excited about the potential. I would like to encourage everybody, the doctors, the patients in particular, to join the effort together only as a team. We will succeed and imagine where we are in three years' time if we are successful on all these fronts. Fantastic. Naveen? My last take one point, Ruben, would be for looking at these combinations, doublets and maybe even triplet uh, regimens in our MPNs, particularly in the accelerated phase, blast phase, and post-MPN AML. This has been a very difficult area of research, but a lot of new companies and older companies are working in combination with JAK inhibitors and brand new novel agents. So I'd like to keep an eye on that as we move forward over time. Wonderful. You know, and I would share, you know, what I'm excited about, one, the, uh, the unprecedented degree of both activity and collaboration, but two, we're clearly seeing we're not talking about three diseases. We're talking about, you know, a lot of nuances at, at a molecular level, at a phenotype level, at a symptomatic level, you know, that we need all these therapies to be developed because the path for each individual patient might be different. You know, we've learned about a myeloid depletive phenotype that may benefit with pacritinib. We've learned subtlety of who might respond to tamoxifen or to IMG7289 or, or to mamalidinib. So I think much more for us to, to learn, uh, much more individualized therapy, you know, and the advances that occur in MPNs, I think, will have benefits well beyond that. The issues of aging, CHIP, MBS, secondary AML. Uh, on and on, uh, everything is linked, uh, and I'm excited by the progress. So with that, let me thank the, the, the wonderful uh, co-panelists, as well as the, the kind invitation for Vijay Himank for us to be able to share with you some of these exciting updates from ASH 2020. Uh, everyone keep well, and we look forward to hopefully seeing people in person in 2021 sometime soon. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for today's NPN's podcast. Follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with us today. If you enjoyed, make sure to visit VJHemonk.com for up-to-date information from the experts themselves, as well as more exclusive NPN's coverage. Be sure to subscribe to VJHemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple and Podbean. See you next time.